Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by Dr Sparky Booker of Trinity College Dublin. Her paper was entitled Sumptuary Law in Tudor Ireland in its European Context. In my paper today, I'm going to talk about sumptuary law, um, the statutes, the civic ordinances, and the royal proclamations issued in the 15th and 16th centuries in an effort to regulate the apparel and hairstyles worn by the English of Ireland. I plan to compare these enactments to contemporaneous English models, um, also a little bit to European models um, from the same period, just to try and get uh, an insight into why these laws were promulgated and what they can reveal about the colonial community in Ireland. Um, Although laws governing apparel can be found in Ireland as early as 1297 um, and were issued intermittently thereafter, they haven't been well integrated into most general studies of European sumptuary law, um, which tend to just ignore them or to misunderstand the particular local context for the Irish enactments. Conversely, Irish historians have not discussed in, in much detail how such material from Ireland compares to the great volume of sumptuary law found across Europe. The term sumptuary law refers to any law uh, that sought to restrain excessive spending and conspicuous consumption, particularly spending uh, that was deemed unseemly or inappropriate for a given individual's status and place in society. As this paper progresses, you may notice that this terminology, as it implies excessive spending, is not entirely appropriate in an Irish context. But nevertheless, the Irish laws have a good deal in common with sumptuary law, so it seems useful to group them together regardless. Sumptuary laws were enacted across much of Europe in the later Middle Ages and in the early modern period, and the 16th century was particularly active in this regard, as sumptuary regulations were drafted with regularity in England and in German and Italian cities during this period. The regulations were motivated by a variety of concerns, and in the case of English and Irish enactments, um, the concerns are often listed in the preamble telling you why this legislation uh, is necessary, so we know what some of the concerns were. In her 1926 thesis, Frances Baldwin summarized these motives, and her assessment remains to this day one of of the best. Um, Firstly, she wrote, there was the desire to preserve class distinctions so that any stranger could tell merely by looking at a man to what rank in society he belonged. Anxiety about blurred boundaries between classes um, or subgroups within a community seems to have been among the most common and most powerful motives um, behind these laws. And you'll see this was the case in Irish examples where differentiating between English and Irish was at the heart of the regulations. There were also moral concerns about the inherent corrupting influence of luxury and economic concerns that people would descend into poverty trying to keep up with costly fashions or that they would support foreign industries um, at the cost of domestic, uh, homegrown, less luxurious products. Um, Sumptuary laws were usually prohibitive. That is, they enumerated what different people should not wear. Um, although occasionally they did dictate specific clothing to differentiate between different groups, um, as for prostitutes in many um, European cities, or for Jews also. Um, Such laws were difficult to enforce, and it seems in many cases that that not that much effort was actually ever made to do so. 
Thus, they don't tell us how different groups in a given society actually dressed, but rather give us an idealized view of how the political elite wished people to dress. A very famous and illustrative example of sumptuary law um, that was passed in England in 1363. Um, I'll just read the opening passage here, and a lot of the later laws are kind of based on this template. This is one of the, the first sort of really elaborate uh, sumptuary laws in England. Um, it stated that because of the outrageous and excessive apparel of diverse people against their estate and degree to the great destruction and impoverishment of all the land, it is ordained that grooms as well as servants of lords shall be served to eat and drink once a day of flesh or fish and the remnant of other victuals as of butter, milk, or cheese, and that they have clothes for their vesture or hosing where the whole cloth shall not exceed two marks in cost and that they wear no cloth of higher price of their buying nor, nor otherwise, nor nothing of gold, nor silver embroidered, nor of silk, and their wives and daughters and children of the same condition in their clothing and apparel, and they shall wear no veils that are more than 12 pence a veil. Um, so here you can see this kind of moral outrage against luxury, the feeling that it was harmful for society if people dressed in a manner that did not correspond to their status, and also a general economic anxiety about the evils of overspending. This act mentions both clothing and food. Um, there aren't actually any Irish enactments that mention food, um, just clothing and hairstyles. Um, the passage I just read was just the first section of a very lengthy and very detailed piece of legislation that included equally specific articles uh, dealing with what clerks, plowmen, merchants, esquires, uh, knights worth less than 80 pounds a year, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it said, you know, what all of their wives and daughters could wear as well. So it's very uh, detailed piece of legislation. And the English laws from the later 15th and 16th century, um, from 1463, 1510, 1514, 1533, and 1542, followed the precedent of the 1363 legislation um, and were very detailed, focusing on luxury goods like silk, damask, satin, and fur, and making clear delineations within English society based on occupation, wealth, and rank. So elaborate were these laws that charts were published to help simplify and interpret them. Um, and they look kind of like flow charts. So you start with the article of clothing and you follow it over and it says, you know, the different colors it comes in and the different fabrics. Um, and at the end, there's a bracket telling you who can wear them. So if you're in any doubt about what you can wear for your rank, there were these sort of charts um, to help you out. Um, there are also specific ordinances for large cities um, in England, Italy, and Germany. And they too evince the same kind of preoccupations with the maintenance of visual distinctions between individuals of different status and also the concern with restraining excessive expenditure. Irish regulations regarding apparel differ significantly from these English um, and European models. And the contrast is striking, particularly because the colonial administration was regularly headed by chief governors from England who would have been well acquainted with the English statutes. So it's not as if they weren't very much aware of these English models. Several of the Irish examples from this period um, are civic enactments from Waterford, Dublin, and Galway, and they were aimed at small segments of the colonial community rather than, than the community as a whole. Some only applied to citizens, for example, and some only to apprentices within the city um, or to municipal officials. Nevertheless, they fit closely with the legislation of the Irish Parliament and demonstrate all of the same sort of concerns. Chronologically, I'm going to begin before the Tudor period in part because I am a medievalist at heart, but more importantly because there is a very strong continuity in the Irish regulations um, for apparel. 
and the same sort of brevity, simplicity, and uh, most of all the desire to foster English fashions and suppress Irish ones um, that typifies the late 15th and 16th century enactments is evident throughout the 15th century and indeed um, earlier. So in 1447, the Irish Parliament prohibited moustaches for the English of Ireland, proclaiming that if any Englishman did not shave their upper lip, then it would be lawful for every man to take them and their goods as Irish enemies and ransom them as Irish enemies. Um, this punishment, which is basically the loss of the protection of English law, um, was a very harsh one in comparison to English reg regulations regarding fashion, which usually stipulated a fine um, and also the loss of the offending article of clothing. This punishment was likely so stringent because, as strange as it sounds, um, moustaches were a serious threat to the security of the colony. Uh, English marchers and Irishmen looked so similar when they were both wearing moustaches that Irishmen were able to enter and raid the colony unrecognized and unhindered. Citing such practical security reasons for regulating apparel is unusual, very unusual in a European context. The next regulations issued governing apparel were municipal ones. In 1466, the Dublin City Council ordered that no woman of whatever condition she be dwelling within the franchise is to wear saffron smocks or saffron kerchiefs on the pain of six shillings. The council also stated that any person who routinely wore a mantle, which is this large shaggy woolen cloak, um, would incur the same six shilling fine. Both saffron clothes, particularly the, the long shirt or smock, um, and mantles were closely associated with the Irish in this period, and hence their prohibition. Anyone who reported such offenders would be given a third of the fine, and this method of encouraging policing from within the community was also used in England in the 15th and 16th centuries. The next act passed against Irish clothing for the English after those of 1466 in Dublin um, were drafted by the Waterford and Galway city councils, and they weren't as specific as the Dublin ordinances about what exactly Irish or English clothes were. In 1469, the Waterford city council ruled that if an apprentice of Irish blood or nation wanted the franchise, he must be of English array, habit, and speech. This is one of the few enactments from the later 15th century that encouraged the Irish who lived in English areas to adopt English clothing. There was also an Irish parliamentary uh, act in 1465 encouraging the Irish living among the English to go unto like Englishmen in apparel and to shave off his beard above the mouth. These laws for the Irish who lived in the colony are less numerous than those for the English, um, but they are also very important. They show that sumptuary law in Ireland was not just about marking out Englishmen from Irish enemies, um, from Irishmen who were outside English law, but also about attempting to make the entire population of English Ireland, a population that encompassed both English and Irish individuals, look and appear culturally English. In 1477, the City Council of Waterford ordered that constables be able to speak good English and wear gowns made of English cloth and go in English array. In 1489, it enacted a, an ordinance calling for foreigners in the town to wear English gowns um, and no one to rent to these foreigners unless they were wearing English clothes. In Galway, in uh, 1523, the, the mustache came up again as this symbol of Irishness. Um, no man could be made into a citizen unless he shaved his upper lip weekly. Um, so again, we see city councils encouraging English fashions for the populations of their towns, even foreigners and, and Irishmen. About 10 years later, um, in 1534, the ordinances for Ireland suggested that no gentleman um, wear a crummel, this Irish moustache, nor an Irish hood, um, which I think refers to the mantle, upon pain of forfeiture of 100 shillings, which is quite a, a high fine, especially compared to the English 
science. Um, a few years later, in 1536, it was proposed to the Irish Parliament that all gentlemen, freeholders, and others within the king's dominion uh, shave their overlips, wear caps, let their hair grow, and be obedient to the king and amenable to his laws. These suggestions bore fruit in 1536, when the Parliament passed the Act for the English Order, Habit, and Language. Um, and this is the most detailed parliamentary uh, act about um, apparel in this period. It said that no person, nor persons who are the king's subjects in this land, shall be shorn or shaven above the ears, or wear any hair upon their heads, like long locks called glibs, which is a fringe in front of the face, um, or have or use any hair growing on their upper lips, called a crummel, or use or wear any shirt, smock, kerchief, neckerchief, mocket, or linen cap, colored or dyed with saffron, nor wear in their shirts or smocks above seven yards of cloth, to be measured according to the king's standard. And also, no woman use or wear any kirtle or coat tucked up or garnished with silk or couched or laid with usker after the Irish fashion. Um, also, that no one wear mantles or coat or hood after the Irish fashion. Um, these enactments were the most detailed and elaborate. Um, they sp specifically prohibited the mantle, the crummel, which is the mustache, um, the various saffron garments, and this particular kind of Irish embroidery. Um, the stuff about the, the seven yards of cloth um, and also the garnishing with silk may be the only real sumptuary enactments from Ireland, ones that are just trying to um, restrain excessive spending. Although it could be that this long uh, cloak that was made with more than seven yards of cloth was itself an Irish fashion. It doesn't actually specify why those particular things are, are banned. Um, in... in uh, as the sumptuary law became a little more detailed in Ireland, um, the same thing was happening across Europe. So Ireland was following a, a European trend in becoming slightly more elaborate in the early 16th century. Um, but although this uh, 1537 enactment was more detailed um, than earlier Irish sumptuary laws, it was still far less detailed than laws in Europe at the same time. Um, so overall, how does Irish law regarding attire compare to contemporary European and English sanctuary law? Well, it does display some of the same central concerns about deceptive appearances, about outward appearances faithfully reflecting status. In the Irish case, the status signified by dress was either English or law-abiding Irish um, or Irish enemies. Much of it seems to have been urban in character. Ordinances regarding dress were passed by the Dublin, Waterford, and Galway city councils. This too has European parallels. Um, Italian cities were among the most prolific issuers of sumptuary law, and much sumptuary legislation was intended for urban areas. The fear of misidentification or visual misrepresentation may have been less acute in rural environments, as they didn't have the larger transient populations characteristic of urban environments. Irish laws about apparel um, also display some very significant differences to sumptuary law in the rest of Europe. There's not that much of it, um, for one. It also doesn't seem to have been motivated by fears about excessive consumption from either a moral or religious standpoint. At least it's never justified in that way. And only those two little pieces from the last piece of legislation could be about excessive consumption. Um, in this sense, it may be a misnomer to call it sumptuary legislation at all. The Irish laws and ordinances weren't designed to protect native industry or for any other economic considerations. Sumptuary law in Ireland was also quite simple and not particularly detailed. Um, 
It sometimes offered very practical justifications for the enactment, reasons why it was important for Englishmen not to wear Irish apparel or mustaches. We saw this is not usual in a European context. These Irish laws were concerned more or less entirely with the difference between English and Irish clothes and the necessity of Englishmen looking English rather than Irish. However, though it engaged with and was based on the idea of the dichotomy between English and Irish, it didn't stigmatize the Irish who lived in the colony. Unlike some European laws regarding marginalized groups like the Jews, um, it was inclusive and didn't seek to mark out the Irish or prevent them from assimil assimilating fully. Most interestingly of all, I think, is the fact that it didn't ever seek to prescribe different clothes for different people within the English community. It wasn't intended to preserve or encourage visual distinction of rank or status between colonists. The English laws that we've seen and the other European sumptuary laws dictated which styles and fabrics a knight could wear compared to a laborer, for example, and contained detailed instructions regarding the dress of people of varying rank. This type of material is entirely absent from Irish sumptuary law. Um, and this is the most speculative part, this, uh, what I th why I think this is. Why is this kind of material absent from Irish law? Um, one reason, I think, is the relative poverty of the colonial population. Almost constant low-level warfare and instability, combined with the failure of the colonial population to entirely recover from the disasters of the 14th century, ensured that Ireland was not a wealthy country in this period. And I wouldn't want to overstate the case. Ireland did import luxury goods, and the records of the Port of Dublin and its English trading partners um, attest to this fact. Nevertheless, it was probably the case that many people, even in the gentry and nobility, may not have had the adequate excess income required to purchase luxury items like the furs and silks that are often regulated by sumptuary legislation. Additionally, Ireland was without a royal court. Much of the competitive consumption of the kind that was regulated by sumptuary laws uh, centered around royal courts. And the absence of such a court in Ireland may have deprived the colonial community of a place where luxury items and fashions could be displayed and admired. One other factor uh, to consider is the relatively small size of the English population in Ireland at this time, and the fact that there was not a great deal of immigration into Ireland in this period. This may have meant that the anxiety about recognizing the status of individuals may have been less uh, acute in the colonial community than it would have been in very large English or European towns where anonymity was more common. It may also be that the colony's obsession with English versus Irish and their constant striving to maintain Englishness in the face of extensive assimilation, um, their desire to extirpate Irish fashions like the mantles and the moustaches, lessened their desire to differentiate among themselves. The presence of enemies um, like the Irish uh, lords who lived outside the colony and continually harried it in the later Middle Ages may have made the English of Ireland less concerned with signaling and preserving the distinctions of rank and status within their own community. Um, and you wouldn't want to take this too far. Um, rank and status were, of course, still important in English society in Ireland. And we can see from other sources that this was the case. But it may be that the difficult, embattled position of the English of Ireland um, and their enmity towards the Irish outside the colony um, had a unifying effect. Thus, the study of regulations regarding apparel in the English colony in Ireland can inform our understanding not only of the relationships between the English and the Irish, <clears throat> but also provide insight into the nature of English society in Ireland and how it compared to that in England and Europe. Thank you.